Hello coders, welcome to episode 182 of the How to Code Well podcast. Today we've got three news topics that I'm going to talk about. First of all, we're going to be talking about the EU. Then we're going to be talking about Microsoft Teams. And then we've got to talk about some of the Twitter changes because I want to talk a little bit about my opinions regarding that. So today, in terms of the change log, there isn't really a lot to say. I am traveling in the next few weeks, so I am essentially giving myself a bit of a code a code freeze uh, regarding the How to Code Well platform and the code that I, that I write in the evenings. And I'll pick that up again. So yes, we are still doing the code quiz. That is happening on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's pretty, pretty interesting at the minute because we're using the Instagram stories for these code quizzes. These are sort of a poll, if you will, that's on Instagram. But I've been using the image of my dogs in the background. So I have two dogs. I've got Goose and I've got Murphy. And for each of the code quizzes that I put out every day on Instagram, there is an image of, of my dog. So if you want to see what they look like, then go check out and the mischief they get into and how messy they get in up to <laughs> when they're out on their walks. Go check that out. And of course, we do a Twitter poll as well every day. This week, it's been mostly Python stuff. Last week was a bit of PHP and a little bit of JavaScript. So go check out that. I've also, I'm also using the hashtag CodeQuiz on Twitter as well. So the EU... Let's change direction, shall we? The EU is bringing down the walled gardens. Now, we've talked about walled gardens before on this podcast. We've mentioned that the, the walled garden is essentially sort of this serene place where it's an ecosystem, essentially, for Apple, for Google, for Microsoft, for whatever company. And they have their walled gardens. They have their ecosystems. And the devices and the software work perfectly well within the walled garden but when you get outside of that walled garden and you try and use someone else's devices or software it doesn't interact well doesn't really play nicely an example here is the um the apple earpods so the earpods work flawlessly in my opinion i actually put my earpods unfortunately in the washing machine the other day but they still seem to work fine anyway that's another story so they work flawlessly, in my opinion, with Mac, with iPad, and with the iPhone. However, if you try and do anything with the, the uh, AirPods, AirPods, or whatever they're called, I don't know. If you try and do anything with them outside of the Apple ecosystem, then you're in for a bit of a pain, pain uh, painful time. Because they don't, they don't hook into those products as easily as the Apple stuff. So that's essentially what the wall garden is in a nutshell. It's hooks that keep you into the ecosystem. And the higher the walled garden is, the the better it is inside the walled garden and the more difficult it is to get out. Now, the EU is trying to bring this down and they're trying to lower the walled garden. I have an article here. I'll put a link in the show notes below from Computer World. And they talk about a DMA and what this DMA provides or requires. And a, a quote here is that the idea behind the DMA is to force major internet firms and in uh, quotes, gatekeepers to open 
uh, open to com competition and to ensure larger platforms are obliged to act as responsible corporate citizens. So they're not being responsible right now in terms of the EU. They're not being, uh-oh, they're not being responsible, tut-tut. Companies must be of significant market size and must provide core platforms across at least three EU states to more than 45 million active users. So there's a couple of things there. I don't know what an active user means in terms of Google, in terms of of Microsoft in terms of Apple and, and whatnot, because with those platforms, and of course you've got Facebook and, and, and Twitter, and they'll all fit into this category, I'm sure. But in terms of active users, I don't really know what that means because Microsoft have various different arms of their, uh, their brand. So you've got Xbox, you've got Xbox users, you've got enterprise users, you've got Windows users. I'm not too sure what that means active users. I don't know whether it's a user across the board or whether it is for those specific sectors. I don't know. But it does provide, this article does provide five points what this DMA is all about. So we'll go through them. Ensuring end users can easily unsubscribe from core platform services or uninstall pre-installed core platform services. <gasps> so to either unsubscribe or to uninstall pre-installed core platform services. Again, devil's in the detail. Don't really know what core platform service is. However, if I was to think about it a little bit more, a core service in terms of the Apple iPhone would be something like the App Store, would be something like the iCloud, would be something like just the Notes app or the, the, the Photos app, right? I don't know whether you can claim that as a core service. Maybe, I mean, perhaps you should, perhaps you should. So this is to ensure end users can easily unsubscribe. So we know that the EU have been trying to force Apple to do various things in, in the previous few years, longer than that. And I think the word easily here is quite an interesting one because they've they've made decisions that have allowed them to adopt some of the recommendations or guidelines or requirements, depends on how you look at it, from the EU, but have done so in a very non-easy way. <laughs> so I don't know how this is going to, how Apple is go are going to respond to this, to be honest. The next point is to stopping the installation of software by default alongside the operating system. They're all Apple, Microsoft, Google, they, they all are uh, fall foul to this. So when you install the operating system, you also install other applications as well. And there are certain things that um, certain devices, certain platforms that uh, say what is going to be installed before it gets installed and you have the option to do so. But again, they don't make it easy. They don't make it easy. The next one is to uh, providing advertising performance data and ad pricing information. I'm not sure if this is in some form of a report that needs to provided, be provided to the, to the end user or just to the EU. I'm not too sure what that's all about. The next one is permitting the use of alternative in-app payment systems. This one is going to hurt Apple in my opinion because Apple have been trying to, to control the in-app purchases 
of various different, well, of all of their apps. And they've allowed out of apps access to various payment platforms, but it doesn't, it's not a very good experience. It's not easy experience. It's actually very poor UX. And that, I believe, has been done on purpose. But now we're we're permitting the use of alternative in-app payment systems. So at some point in your app, you're going to need to have a choice uh, of, as to what payment system you want to use. And it has to be in-app. So it can't be out of app. So that's going to be an interesting one for uh, us developers to, to create and handle. The last one is permitting end users to download alternative app stores. This is going to be quite a large challenge because what on earth does this mean in terms of iPhone and Android? Are we now allowing Android and iPhone to share their, their own app stores? It's going to be painful. And I'm, I'm very interested to see how especially Apple will try and weasel their way out of, of this or try and adopt this, but in a way that is actually quite challenging for the end user to do because obviously if the end user finds that um, the easiest choice is to just use the app store that's installed or to use the the payment system that's done by default if the default that apple provide is the easiest one then no doubt that will be the one that gets used but this is an, it's an interesting uh, time for uh, app developers i think and the rules that the EU are, are putting down. And we all know how good the EU is, don't we? Said with sarcasm. Right, let's talk about Microsoft. So Microsoft Teams has an update which makes it 30% faster. Now, why am I talking about this? Why should I even care about this? So I use Microsoft Teams. I use Microsoft Teams, I use Slack, I use um, Zoom, I use all sorts of various different collaboration tools. And uh, Microsoft Teams is probably the one I use less of, to be honest. So I don't actually, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I will see a difference in speed. I might see a difference in, um, in perhaps the, the how, how flaky things are in, in terms of Microsoft teams because sometimes it just keeps crashing so I, I hopefully this is going to fix that because i'm sure when you load up microsoft teams it has to do a bunch of downloads and talks to various different things but the reason why i'm talking about this is the is the fact that they go on to say in this article this is from the register that the upgrades microsoft en engineers made to the collaborative software's underlying framework also ramped up the speed of joining a meeting by 21% and in meeting functions, we're told. As an example, the Windows biz has apparently cut the latency involved with raising a hand by 16%. Now, this might sound like just a boring stats to you. I mean, let's just raise a hand and yay, we've got it down to 16%. It's now 16% faster to raise a hand in Microsoft Teams. But to me, this makes me feel that when they released Microsoft Teams, it wasn't really in the fittest state. And they probably knew about this. They probably knew that they rolled this out knowing that it isn't actually perfect. And this is a good thing because software shouldn't be perfect. It never is perfect. And rolling it out perfect is just going to lead you with, with problems, I think, because everything changes, everything increments. And if you try and get perfection, 
in your first ever deployment, then you'll never deploy. So it's always good to know the things that you need to change on the first deployment after the deployment and actually have a, an awareness as to what is required for launch, first launch, and what can be improved going forward. So this was obviously something, in my opinion, that they knew about and they knew that they needed to change. So they probably had a bunch of meetings around these kind of functions and in meeting functions and the underlying framework that Microsoft Teams uses. And they probably came to a decision that it's good enough for first launch. The thing is when Microsoft Teams came out, it did feel like it was a rushed release, to be honest. And yes, it has got better as things, as, as, as the, um, the years gone on, but it's certainly not anywhere near as good in my opinion, or as fast as Slack. I don't know what the actual raw numbers are, but it's a great example of software that can just change and evolve going forward. And the fact that they've made some underlying framework changes to this application going forward is really quite clever. The disappointing piece of news here is that they're going to stop the Linux desktop app and they're instead going to be using the window, sorry, the, the web app for uh, Microsoft Teams, so, which is a bit weird because Microsoft are trying to push the whole Linux sort of open source thing and they've decided to kill the Linux desktop app unfortunately. So if you see any speed improvements or if you like the changes, then uh, good for you. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that th this won't affect me much, to be honest. I was just very interested that this um, this is a reflection of a very large company bringing out some software that isn't perfect. <laughs> it's something that I need to remember whenever I launch parts of the House Code Well platform. It doesn't need to be perfect in the first iteration. As long as there's iterations after the first iteration, it's fine. And lastly, I want to talk about the Twitter layoffs and uh, the Twitter news. So Twitter, Elon Musk, uh, obviously has changed a lot of stuff in, in, in the Twitter space in the last, I don't know, week since, uh, since the announcement of the buyout and one of the big changes is that half of nearly half of the staff i think 3700 people have been let go for twitter and initially when i read this i was quite shocked i was like oh my god so twitter is just going to go down now you know it's just going to sink you obviously need these people they're not all developers but you know a, lot, a large portion of them will be to keep this thing afloat. And also the way in which it was done, the approach, as I mentioned in the last podcast, was so bad, in my opinion. It wasn't very human friendly. It was very business-like, very binary, very, we need to save money, so off you go type thing. <sighs> Although I say that, apparently they were given a, a nice packet when they were let go. I don't know if that's a fact or not, but th that's what I've heard, which is obviously nice. Some of them have apparently come back. I don't really know the ins and outs of all this stuff. And I was a little bit disheartened when I heard that this amount of people were being laid off straight away because my, my thought process went straight to, oh my God, these people have mortgages. These people have families. These people have put their blood, sweat and tears and soul into this, this application, the bird app. 
and now they've just been let go. And I actually felt a little bit as a developer kind of betrayed. If that was in, if I was in their shoes, that's how I would feel. However, over the days, I've been thinking about it from a business point of view. Apparently, Twitter has been losing like three to four million dollars a day, and there the layoffs of three thousand seven hundred people have happened. So you can see it from a business point of view that that has to ha- had to have happened. They were losing so much money every day. They needed to do something, something drastic. And it's for the greater good, right? To keep that going. Weirdly, Twitter hasn't had any downtime since that's since this has been reported. So you have to ask questions there, some hard questions as to what on earth was going on in Twitter? What on earth were all of these employees doing? And Obviously, I'm not going to know the, the answer to this. And obviously, they probably have a, a worthy thing to say, right? If, if I was to ever interview an ex-Twitter employee. But it sounds as though there was a lot of committees. And it sounds as though there was a lot of discussions rather than a lot, a lot of actual proactive work. In my opinion, this is just from what I can gather from the amount of people that have been laid off and what they were in charge of. Rather than the actual, you know, nuts and bolts. It was more about committees. And I've been listening to, I'm going to butcher this name, Andres, Andre, Andre Kapathy, Kapathy on the Lex Friedman podcast. Andre is a former director of AI in Tesla, and he was talking about software 2.0 and AI and all that stuff. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes to that uh, podcast. It's really fascinating. I, I'm only halfway through. Because these things are three hours long. Jeez. Imagine a How to Code Well podcast three hours long. I don't have time in the day to do a three-hour podcast, and I don't think I've got enough to say in three hours. <laughs> but anyway, the Andre was talking about some really interesting stuff uh, regarding working with Elon and how the fact that he prefers simplicity over complexity and that he will try and find the most efficient way to do something in the simplest possible way. And this is, in my opinion, the Twitter layoffs is, he obviously went in and and saw that there was a lot of people doing a lot of stuff, but not actually moving the company forward, in his opinion. And so he decided to get rid of those people and to make the barrier of deployments, I would like to assume, faster rather than having to go through all of these discussion groups, committees, just to make a decision as to whether something can actually happen. Now, whether that's a good thing or not in the, in, in the world of free speech and, and the end goal of Twitter, whether this is a good thing or not, th- that is something that we'll, we won't know until negative things really start cropping up and happening. But I'm just shocked that Twitter is still running. <laughs> to be honest, because nearly half of the staff have gone and it's gone for nearly a week since, you know, recording this. And so that's really, really good. In my opinion, that's actually quite a, a worthy achievement for someone to come in and drop half of the members of staff and for the service to still run as it was before. That is huge. That just proves to me he knew what he was doing in terms of saving money. And I think this is all what it's for. Whether or not 
the verification stuff and the stuff he's been he's been mentioning and teasing about content creation and monetization of Twitter. Whether that's going to be a good thing or not, I don't know. We just have to wait and see, to be honest. But the thing is, I'm trying to take sort of a more of an objective, more of a pragmatic view of this because I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, this is now going to crash and burn. You know, you've wiped out half of the workforce. So Twitter is just going to be very flaky and there's going to be a lot of bad actors on there now because there's going to not be enough people to uh, review and deal with bad actors and, and, and whatnot. And I was looking at different alternatives, one being Mastodon, and I was considering whether or not to to join, as as I'm sure everyone was considering, but I've decided to hold on and just to see how this thing pans out. I am I have ideas of of how to use perhaps Mastodon or other platforms in the future. And I have got a discussion going in our Discord server at howtocodewell.net forward slash Discord if you want a free invite there. I've got a discussion going in the community channel as to what a Mastodon social network would look like for how to code well and whether or not it's even needed in terms of content creation creators though it's always good to diversify your platforms so that's this is why i do live streaming on both youtube and on on twitch and this is why i've got multiple youtube channels and this is why i use instagram as well as um twitter for the code quizzes now the instagram following that i have is actually half decent i i think it's it's pretty good it's been going it's been getting uh, bigger and bigger by very small increments going forward and i don't want to stop that i don't want to stop that so for now i'm just going to keep on twitter at how to code well and in the future we may be moving on to something else but it will be alongside twitter i don't think i'll ever leave twitter unless it gets really really nasty but you'll be the first to know. You'll be the first to know on this podcast. I'm going to shoot off. Thank you ever so much for your time. Happy coding, everybody. And I will see you again very shortly. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.